Hello, and welcome back to Searching Inward, a podcast brought to you by Restore Small Groups here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm George, joined with Scott and Seth and Anna and all of you listening from from wherever you are joining us. We're glad you're here. And we are taking uh, an episode, which is actually a a short chapter in Scott's book of Journey of Transformation, and uh, just kind of riffing on it and having conversations around that. So today we want to talk to you about toxic shame as an identity. Shame locks us in a psychological paralysis, but there's always one more move. But shame will offer its own way out. Kurt Thompson writes, uh, shame wants to alter our stories by telling its own version, one that is sure to bring trouble wherever it goes. Scott, you uh, say um, in this chapter that shame takes control by creating a false self. And when our feeling of shame becomes toxic, we disown ourselves. And this disowning demands a cover-up. So we parade in many garbs and get-ups. Uh, Scott, first of all, what, what do you mean by toxic shame as an identity? And what does it mean to disown ourselves? I was actually thinking a lot about that yesterday as I was, I was processing the word redemption and what it means to be redeemed. And what I found was, for me, redemption is where I'm set free from the false self. I'm set free from the shame that keeps me in bondage to the false self. And then just for our listeners to know that years ago when I read Bradshaw's classic, Healing and Shame Abides You, and he's the one who created the, the concept of a toxic shame. And it's just a very simple statement he made, but he says, healthy shame tells me I made a mistake. Toxic shame tells me that I am a mistake. He says it becomes our identity. And then when I read Thompson's classic, for me it's a classic, The Soul of Shame, he just really points out that that, uh, that ruptured self, that fractured self, is the only way that we can manage it is the creation of a false self. Mm. And then Bradshaw said that from the false self, all of our addictive behaviors find their root. And I thought that was so profound because we're running away from the loneliness and the isolation that the false self creates because I know I'm being faced. I know that what I believe is that if you truly know me, you will reject me. And then... Further on in this chapter, I talk about Rohr's, his concept of false self. He says, false self is which we might call ourselves our small self as your launching pad, your body image, your job, your education, your clothes, your money, your car, your sexual identity, your success, and so on and so on. I thought, wow, that is so true. Because that's what Thompson said. Eventually, shame, he says, worked its way into every aspect of your life. And so... And then the more that creeps in, the greater the false self becomes. And, and we're hearing a lot more talk about the false self in our society now. Just um, It's just deadly. And so for me, redemption is coming home. Transformation is really being set free to be my true self and finding the love for that person. And I really believe that is, that is the process that we're all wanting to work. Scott, say say again the difference between toxic shame and just regular shame. Yeah, Bradshaw starts his his classic out that healthy shame is 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 good for us. It, mm-hmm. it lets me know I I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I'm gonna I have flaws. I need others. I need God. This is a it's a humble position position to be in, and and it takes all this pressure off. But 
toxic shame. So healthy shame lets me know, hey, you made a mistake. That's 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 we we need to work on it. But toxic shame tells me, no, you are a mistake. Mm. It's identity. It's it's who I am. Mm-hmm. It's not that you might not love me. It's that I'm not lovable. It's definitive, as I like to say. So this is where the false self comes in. Um, when maybe we're, un- we're we're dealing with toxic shame, so we don't really want to show our true identity, or, or the, at least the the false identity that we're. Well, we are actually trying to show a false identity. We're trying to hide from right. our true identity, which we think is shameful. And what you're saying is, is that that's different than actually shame that shows us, man, there's there's ways that we can grow or ways that we can heal or improve. Is that is that what you're driving right. at? Right, because I always say this shame, toxic shame is the loudest voice in my life. It is saying, if they know you, if mm-hmm. they really know you, they will reject you. Mm. And it's a, it's a fact because you're not lovable. You are a mistake. You're beyond grace. You're beyond restoration. Man, I love that. So it's not that I made a mistake. It's that I am a mistake. George, I just want to say real quick, I think this is one of the most significant topics for our listeners. It's just how powerful the allure is of the false self Mm -hmm. Mm. and and just how detrimental that is to our mental and physical and our emotional well-being. I mean, it's just devastating. And we will act out in some form to numb that, as Brene Brown says, because it's total isolation. I'm alone. I'm alone. I think you're really onto something, Scott, because this is, I feel like this is the collective experience that so much of us are are talking about right now, the epidemic of loneliness. Mm -hmm. Because we're all, you know, on social media trying to present some image Mm -hmm. of ourselves and we're disconnected from our our authenticity. Mm And that's that's the separate self, as you were saying. That quote is he quoted Roar, right? I am mm-hmm. separate. Mm. That's how I'm. Yeah. So you got the false self, the small self, the separate self. Oh, the small self. Yeah, yeah. they're all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Richard uh, Roar says that he describes the small self or the false self as it's how we look good to others in order to feel good about ourselves. And that's what you're kind of kind of hitting on, yeah. Seth. Right? Is how social media maybe gives us yeah. a platform to to do that. Yeah, when we have to choose between what is it, authenticity and belonging, we we go to belonging, right? Because we're mm, we're designed yes. to need community. But when we do that, we're um, I guess conditioned to believe that only a um, a part of our whole self is acceptable. We have to leave part of our authentic self behind to belong. Then, yeah, we're living out of our false self. We're not being authentic to yeah. who we are actually designed and created to be. Why, do, yeah, why does the false self feel so good and hopeful at first? I mean, there is something about, you know, posting something on social media that presents yourself as the absolute best and, you know, in the perfect situation, the perfect look. Um, why does that feel so good at first? It meets a need, I think. Mm-hmm. It, you know, we need mm-hmm. to belong. We need to be accepted. We need to be affirmed. And when that isn't happening with our authentic self, because obviously our authentic self has has flaws and shortcomings, right? And so nobody's going to be like, hey, you didn't get your homework done tonight? Great job, <laughs> right? And that's maybe more of our authentic self. Like we, we had a failing. We, we had a shortcoming. We didn't get our homework done. 
you know, this this topic always takes me back to the to the twelve steps, and the second step, which again, it's a short step, but they say it is one of the most, if not the most, difficult step. And that is, we came to believe, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And I've always thought that two things are happening here. One, I'm coming to believe that I'm lovable. That, and what I love about step two, it comes right after I've made my confession and kind of in step one of what I'm powerless over my struggles. I've come out, I've, I've come out of denial. I said, look, this is this is what I this is what I struggle with. These are my flaws. These are my weaknesses. This is what this is what I really have struggled in my life. And then step two, before we can turn our will and our lives over to care of God, is step three. We have to come to believe that we're lovable that God cares for me just as I am, and he meets me right where I am. And I think that that's what we see in groups, that what makes a small group so powerful is that the only way I'm going to ever come out of my false self is to tell the truth. Mm. This is this is who I really am, or this is a part of who I really am, this part that I'm hiding here, and I'm going to confess it to you. And then I share all that, I tell my truth, I tell my story, and then people look at me and they say, we love you, and we are for you. And we believe in you. We will never abandon you. Glad you're here. That affirmation is the first time I think I really experienced true love. These people love me, me, not the false self. They love me. And then if I can take that into the world, into my life, it takes me out of the loneliness. And then I can truly connect with people for true connections and not just seeking validation all the time, which is what we see all the, in our epidemic now. So this topic is immensely important. And that's why Brene Brown says, wherever you can find that space, those groups where you can be authentic and be known, sprint to them. And then that's interesting, last thing I'll say is that when Bradshaw says there's only one antidote for toxic shame, and that is exposure, the very thing that we are most terrified of is the only antidote. Mm. And, and wherever that space is, find it. Your identity of, of being loved it goes back to Seth telling his kids, "Who are you? I'm yes. I'm loved." Um, I, so that is the true antidote, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to add on mm-hmm. to that, I'm just thinking about that. My wife says I say I have too many of these mm-hmm. um, as an almost forty year old. Uh, uh, but whatever you call these, are they aphorisms? Where it's like a yeah. two word thing. But you know we're. I think it's true that we're wounded in relationship and so we're also healed in relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why I hear Scott talking about like why, what Anna was addressing, why it feels so good to have a false self is because it meets a need, right? And I, and I think specifically growing up, like a, the, the development of a personality is all about acting in, we try on certain kind of, you know, behaviors and whatever helps us most get our needs mm-hmm. met is the one we continue to play out. Which means there's other behaviors that are what could undermine us getting our needs met. And those are the ones we disown. Those are the ones we distance ourselves from, but those are part of us still. Um, And so that's what I mean. That's what I even think of primarily as how we're wounded in relationship because we're we're not really, as little kids who are vulnerable and and don't have developed brains yet, we have to let leave behind parts of ourselves that are really important, and that's how we're wounded in relationship. But 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 healthy uh, environments growing up or healthy adult environments are the ones that we are reminded that we can be our 
our whole self. And this doesn't have to stay disowned. This part of me can show up here and be uh, loved, and that's how I become whole, you know? And this day, Scott, you talked about shame is dualistic. Mm-hmm. Either or, uh, you're this or you're not this, which really just kind of closes up. That, that's where the where we're paralyzed. It's like we don't see any any other option, and we stop dreaming of who we can be or, or where we can go with this, right? So, right. Well, guys, how do we think, how do we move well, through that? I think that that it's um, the systemic shame based society that we grow up in, and the systems that impact us. Family of origin, schools, religion, and just society in general. Everything's set up on a, re- on a reward basis. If you perform well, you're loved. That's the message that we get since we're from bringing home our grade cards to making a team to getting a date to, to this, how much money you have, just on and on and on. And so we're, we are, it's reinforced in us that if I don't measure up, that I'm not loved. People love the heroes. People love the successful ones, the attractive ones, the smart ones. And so it's uh, and so no wonder we create a false self because we all have this deep inborn desire to be loved. And, and our society teaches us to be loved. You've got to be lovable. And lovable people are smart, successful, attractive, so on and so on, popular. When the truth is, is that being lovable is true of all of us. Mm-hmm. Yes. No matter where we find ourselves. And that's where, like Seth was saying, in these space of these groups where I come and here's this is what's my here's my true story. Mm-hmm. And people are like, We love you, we're for you, and we'll never abandon you. That message um, gives me the actually the strength to tell my story and see my story then maybe in a completely different way. Yeah, my my first thoughts around duality of shame is, you know, duality says um, this versus that, whereas mm-hmm. it, instead of this and that, mm. um, uh, that is more so expressing, I think, this idea of non-duality. Like I am, like an example is I am broken or flawed or um, I am loved, I'm healed and whole. It can't be can't be both. Wow. That's what duality says. Where, or what if I'm? What more accurately reflects, you know, being human is that I am not broken, but I am both limited and loved. Mm. Um, this, to, you know, that that idea of of uh, already, not yet. Mm-hmm. Like I'm already perfectly loved, but I haven't allowed all the parts of me to receive that truth yet. Um, so, to me, this is how we accurately human by allowing grace to have first dibs on who we are and then to recognize to also recognize and to recognize that life is this never-ending process of becoming as we always talk about so Mm -hmm. for me like shame from a dualistic perspective perspective is focusing on toxic shame as first broken and flawed and so there's a fixed mindset of this is how i'll always be um and healthy shame or from a more non-dual perspective is that I am first limited, but I am also becoming. Wow, that's really good, Seth. Very helpful. Kurt Thompson, he said this, which kind of goes to this dualistic, overcoming this dualistic nature of what shame could be. But he says, to scorn or disregard shame is to acknowledge it and turn away as if we think nothing of it. So 
I, I love that his thought there is that, yeah, the first thing you do is you turn toward it, you acknowledge it, um, but you don't stay there. It's, it's moving beyond it. But shame wants to keep us stuck there, right? Um, or our false self doesn't want to actually acknowledge the shame that, that, that might be there to even identify whether it's toxic or, or healthy, right? So I love this process. But what does it mean to do that? To scorn or disregard shame is to acknowledge it and turn away as if we think nothing of it. How do, how do we do that? I think this is where we need a boots on the ground story, right? What does it look mm-hmm. like actually mm-hmm. to live that out? So I'll I'll go there. <laughs> I'll go there. <laughs> so Thank I, you. I think for me, um, while I I wouldn't necessarily I um say that I um consciously like strive with shame, like hate, you know, like I don't feel like, oh, I hate who I am or whatever. But as I unpack my story and I look at how I've learned to show up in the world, I can see that I live so largely out of a false self, um, particularly in respect to not taking up space, not infringing on anybody else's uh, time or energy or resources but to be solely dependent on myself and to also be overly accommodating to others. That is how I learned to, um, to be acceptable, right? To become what I thought my family of origin expected of me, like particularly in regards to our faith tradition, like to, you know what I mean? Like to, to be, I was taught to be a good Christian. Like you're not, you're not asking of others. You are showing up for others. You're giving, you're giving, you're giving, you're giving, but you are never, ever receiving. And if you, if you deign to ask for something, um, whether that's somebody's attention, whether that's somebody's time, whether that's somebody's comfort, then that is a character flaw, right? Because I was, taught that, you know, we are, we are the givers of Christ. We are the bringers of Christ and Christ is in us. And therefore that's all we need. We, we don't have needs. Um, and that is such mm. a, a false belief, but that is how I have fashioned my entire life. And I've learned to live out of the false self. And I've been doing that for nearly 50 years. And I can say like, I am utterly exhausted. Mm. I cannot continue to pour out of an empty cup and we to to have needs is to be human and so learning to embrace that like that giving to you know giving and giving and giving is is not a virtue um although that has been reaffirmed right like when you give unconditionally and without limit and without boundaries obviously people are going to love you right they're going to be happy to receive from you they're going to be happy to take because you're giving but you can't do that indefinitely. Uh, it will take a toll. So I am learning to put that false self away and to create boundaries, to speak up for myself when I have a need and find places where that can be met uh, without being shamed for it. So your false self was disowning of your own needs. Is that what mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say yes. there? Like, so it was my, my false self was meeting the needs of everyone without regard to my own needs because 
I wouldn't be a faithful Christian, one, if Mm -hmm. I didn't put others first Mm -hmm. and sacrifice myself like Christ. But Mm -hmm. the other part of that... To live as Christ and to die as gain. Yeah. Can't tell you Um, how long that, how many times that's been misappropriated in my life. Yeah. And so over the process of time, what I'm hearing you say is that yeah, you do that. You you do that for any period of time and disregard your own needs, then you become a shell of a human being. Mm-hmm. So, how are you seeing things differently, Anna? Or I think for the for the first time in these last couple of years, as I've slowly been uh, making strides to transform my life, I am recognizing the value of my own life as no less significant than any other life on planet Earth, and that I. I am human. I'm not divine. There is not any expectation for me to act in a divine manner as I've always put that pressure on myself. Um, I'm not saying that you give up on goodness and um, and serving others, but I'm, I'm not going to. I think, honestly, just the, the biggest light bulb for me was like, what am I teaching my kids about what it looks like? to be a wife, to be a mother, to be a Christian. I don't want anybody to carry it. It's, it's unmanageable. Right. And if that's what I'm teaching them is the expectation of how you show up in this world, that is not a gift I want to give them. Yeah. So, and the other thing I'm hearing you say in that is that, um, in disowning my, my own needs, my worth is less than someone else's worth and value. Um, Mm -hmm. And somehow there's, uh, what's the word? Like that's champion to to be that kind of person in the world to think right. that maybe other people were more worthy than you. Like, and somehow that's humility, but that's not humility, right? I'm certainly not healthy humility at all. Right, it's martyrdom. Yeah, I can offer a brief story too, if it's helpful. Yeah, please do. To to put some embodiment to that that quote from Kurt Thompson, because I'm with Anna that I think. This is a good this is a good spot to to do that with. Um, there there was a years ago. Um, I was on staff at this this large church, and and it, it play. I'll say the number because it plays into how big of a deal this was for me. It was it was like six or seven thousand people on a weekend, and and this church was largely about performance. And so you put on uh, every service, you would sing one or at least one or two different like cover songs of a well known songs from radio mm-hmm. that people would recognize. And I just remember I somehow had forgotten that I was supposed to do this one song amidst the worship songs that I knew really well. And so I showed up, you know, somewhat hopeful, but in, in some semi-confident because there was a confidence monitor in the back. And this person, it was an, what, I, what I found out last minute was this new person that was running the words in the back. <laughs> and they were not keeping up with me being able to see the words so that I could sing it on time. And, so you were losing um, confidence from the confidence I monitor. I was losing confidence quickly from the confidence monitor. Um, but what happened was I was also playing all this heavier guitar work, mm-hmm. and I was trying to focus on the monitor. And I ended up completely, it was one of the worst performances of my entire life in front of thousands of people. And for some reason, we never changed it. We just kept on doing it over and over. And for each service. Oh, for each service. And yeah. I just, yeah. And I just remember, like, I was literally up there. I knew the melody. Uh, but I was I was seeing I don't even remember what the song is now. But I was seeing something like you know, like <laughs> completely <laughs> just making sounds come out of my mouth to the to melody. Uh, and I just remember um, at the end of that weekend, 
it was such a strong moment for me. Like my false self was like laugh it off, act like this isn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. But it was a huge deal. I I remember thinking I'm either done with doing this for a living Mm. or done pursuing this or I need to make a choice right now that I made a big mistake, but I am not that mistake. Mm. Mm. Uh, Because it felt like I I was a failure. And that was that shame, that toxic shame was so heavy. I was almost ready and willing to just walk off the stage and never come back on. And I just remember I had to make a conscious choice. Like, this is not who I am. I made a choice or I, I made a mistake, but I am not this mistake. I think that wow. speaks to how powerful shame can be, right? That that one bad experience yeah. could cause you to walk away from a, a an actual career that you love mm. because it's yeah. so the, the weight is so heavy. I was close. I'm proud of you yeah. for making the right choice. Well, Scott, Anna and Seth really opened up, so kind of setting the, the bar of vulnerability here. So I'll go. Um, and Seth, you were actually with me at um, this place of vulnerability for me, but uh, Seth was was leading worship in in the church that I pastor, and I had a guest who was a common, was actually a friend of Seth before he was a friend of mine. And... Uh, but anyways, I he works for Operation Andrew, and his name is Adam. But I kept calling him Andrew. <laughs> and actually, when I uh, I met him before he even came to the church, and I was telling Seth, and I called him Andrew, and I said his last name, and Seth's like, well, I have a friend named Adam. but And so I made the connection. But anyways, to make a long story short, uh, I botched his – I called him Andrew six times, six or seven times in that service. And even actually – after catching it, I got up at the very end and called him Andrew again. <laughs> and one, I felt such deep shame. And Seth, I know what you were talking about. I was like, should I really be mm-hmm. doing this? Like, mm-hmm. how can I not get a guest name right? Like, what is going on in my head um, that I botched that so bad? But the deeper thing for me was I felt like I ruined a friendship that mm-hmm. I was really excited about moving into. And so I remember I, I called uh, Adam that afternoon and said, man, I'm so sorry. It probably sounds like I was on drugs or Benadryl or, or something, but I really am not. And, you know, I, I just, I'm so sorry. Like, I know how important names are. But anyways, um, uh, Adam was very gracious and we had become good friends. But I just remember the shame I felt that day and it lingered. And you would think people were just going, oh, gosh, you made a mistake, George. Like, you know, that's, it's okay. But how deep that can go to our identity. I, and Scott, it goes back to what you said. I felt like I'm a mistake. I can't do anything right. Gosh, that is paralyzing. Thompson talks about when we make choices, whether they're thoughts about ourselves or their actual actions that are disintegrated, that that it feeds shame. And integrated thoughts and integrated choices help dissipate shame. And then that is what... Dr. Caroline Leaf says that these choices of what we're choosing to believe and say and these narratives, these paradigms, and then the choices of actions that we make, they're either going to support the, that, that false self and that toxic shame, or it's going to create an integrated response. And so I, a lot of the people that I work with one-on-one, we're all, our goals are today to live an integrated life. That is try to capture thoughts, redirect immediately, but then also watch for actions and choices that they also help. Because 
that's what keeps shame alive is when we're still fostering those thoughts and we're still making choices. And uh, I don't know if that's helpful. It has been for me. Mm-hmm. So the antidote to our shame, to our toxic shame, to the false self-life of isolation and loneliness is to embrace ourselves. And I really believe that um, this one sentence on page 185, when God stirs up a vision of what we can become, I like to change it to who we can become. And I was really processing this yesterday as I was preparing for this, that, um, that this chronic toxic shame has had the greatest negative impact on my life. It's had the greatest impact on my life of anything, far more than grace, mm. because it's so easy to believe that I am so flawed, I've made so many mistakes, have so many weaknesses, that it is inevitable that you will reject me if you really get exposed to all those things. And so the, the path of redemption is coming home to ourselves and knowing that we truly are loved with all our flaws, all our mistakes. Um, and you know what? I, I have, this is a, I've come to learn what a true friendship is. And I think that's because it's come both ways. I realize what I need in a friendship, and then I know what I need to be for others in a friendship. And I really try to walk that out on a daily basis that it does not matter to me what you've done, where you've been, what you believe, all your weaknesses, I, it does not matter. I'm going to meet you there, and I'm going to love you for that. And those are the friendships that I need. Those are the ones that give me life. So the friendships that are not able to offer me that, they're really not friendships. They're really not. They're conditional. And anything that's conditional stirs in me this dependency. i got to perform for this person. i got to be this for this person. And, and there's no freedom in that. So I really think that the path of redemption is coming home to freedom and being true to myself and loving myself just as I am. But that does not mean I cannot have a vision of what I can become and who I can become. And I want to grow. And um, so um, mistakes, I think it was Richard Rohr, it was somebody said mistakes, flaws, sins. As he says, these are all things that God uses for good. And uh, I love that. And so I know when I meet people, I'm like, I'm listening for, okay, how, do, how can I affirm them so that they have hope that they can grow and change? And so I think that's, that's the God that's in me. And the same thing that God is doing for me is, okay, Scott, we know that. We see that. So let's, here we go. We're going to start from there and we're going to grow because you've got so much in you that is so lovable. And um, I want you to see that. So this little chapter in the book, to me, is very significant to our listeners. This is the path to a redeemed life, a life of freedom and hope and a new vision and growth and becoming the best version of us that we can be. Well, friends, you heard it from Scott, who wrote the chapter so beautifully. Grace makes us into what we can never be on our own. I think that's what you're saying. Grace co-creates with us a new destiny, allowing ourselves to be more than shame's lie. And uh, we all have shame lying to us. And uh, our prayer, our encouragement is to find 
some others that can love you unconditionally. And Restore loves to do that in group settings. So uh, if you would love to, to join us, we'd love to have you join us. Connect with us online at restoresmallgroups.org. You can find out uh, just different resources there to read, groups you can join. But uh, we're glad you're joining us here. And just our prayer that you wouldn't believe shame's lie. You wouldn't be paralyzed by shame becoming your identity, that you would find that you are loved. And we all are loved. But over every mountain, there is a path. And the future rewards those who discover it and press on. So stay on the path and take care, friends. Hey, it's George. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Searching Inward podcast. If you've enjoyed listening or have benefited in any way from the podcast, we would love for you to come alongside and join us in the mission to bring hope and healing to the world. By considering becoming a monthly giver of even $5, you're making a huge impact in the ways we're able to serve. Please consider giving by going to restoresmallgroups.org backslash donate. Thanks. Hello and welcome back to Searching Inward, a podcast bot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Seth, here we what? go. We've been sold what? out. Creek, sorry. <laughs>